Let's go before God in prayer and uh, ask him to bless our time together here. Oh God, we thank you for uh, your house and for your people. And uh, Lord, we thank you that we can come together as your people to study your word, uh, to hear it preached, to worship you, to sing to you, uh, to confess your word, to pray to you. All of these things are gifts, and we thank you for that. Uh, We pray that um, we would use this time well, that we would uh, set our minds on your word, and that we would seek to understand it. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless our time together. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, folks, well, we're continuing our series on the sacraments this morning. Um, We're continuing to look at uh, scripture passages that relate to the doctrine of baptism. And if you'll remember, last week we were dealing with the Abrahamic covenant and the sign of the covenant, which was, if you remember, circumcision. And we were looking at Genesis 17. Now, uh, what we did last week was we looked at Genesis 17 on the Abrahamic covenant, and we saw that when God made promises to Abraham, remember he made promises that Abraham would be the father of a great multitude, right? He'd have a lot of descendants, the nation of Israel is going to come forth from him, that sort of thing. And then we saw the promise of land, right? He's going to give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan. But when we were looking at those promises that God made to Abraham, we also looked at Hebrews chapter 11, where the author of Hebrews there, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us what the promises that God made to Abraham were ultimately about. In other words, when God promised Abraham descendants and land, he wasn't primarily promising Abraham simply the nation of Israel and the land of Canaan, but rather what the promise was really about was it was about Jesus, the one descendant coming from Abraham, and the heavenly city, the true promised land, which is heaven. And so that's what the promises in the Abrahamic covenant were truly about. The Israel and land of Canaan, those were all types or shadows of the true fulfillment of the promises that were later to come, and that are still going to be fulfilled in their fullest sense right now. They haven't yet. We're not in heaven. We're not at the new heavens and the new earth yet. Those promises are still being unfolded. And so those were the promises that God made to Abraham. It was about Christ and the heavenly city. And then we saw God gave the promise to Abraham, which was circumcision. And circumcision was a sign of those promises. And that's what we talked about last week. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to continue to look at Scripture. And I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. And uh, while you're doing that, uh, we're going to today be looking at a number of passages in the New Testament that continue to unfold God's covenant with Abraham, as well as the sign of circumcision, and how circumcision and baptism are going to correspond. There's four passages we're going to look at this morning, rather briefly, even though each one of them could be worthy of their own Sunday school session or even a series. Um, But we're going to take it um, really quickly here. And just cover the highlights. So we're looking at Galatians 3. That's our first passage. And I'm going to read for us verses 7 through 9 and 15 through 22. And uh, this is where Paul, if you'll remember in Galatians, Paul is dealing with the doctrine of justification by faith alone. In the midst of Judaizers and in the midst of those who want to say that we should be justified by works of the law, Paul's saying, no, we're justified by faith. And so as he's unfolding that argument... We're going to pick up with Galatians 3, 
starting with verse 7. And I'll read some of these verses here. So Galatians 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, look at verse 15, just a few verses down. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all who believe. All right, there's a lot more we could read in that passage to give us more context and more information. But you can see here, what Paul is doing is as he's explaining the gospel to his Galatian readers, you notice where he's starting from. He's going back to Abraham. When Paul wants to explain justification by faith alone, apart from works, he's going to base his argument by going back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. Now look at some of the things that he says. Verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now this is really important. You remember Jesus had to deal with this issue with the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees thought that they were sons of Abraham simply by being Abraham's physical descendants. And they thought that just because they were physical, literal descendants of Abraham, that they were good, that they were right in God's eyes, that they were the superior above all people. And Paul's saying, well, uh, that's not exactly how it works. Rather, it is those who have faith, like Abraham, who are the true descendants of Abraham. Verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And then he quotes right there from the Abrahamic covenant, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Notice what Paul's saying there, that when God gave the promises of the covenant with Abraham to Abraham, that was the gospel. You see that? The promises in the covenant with Abraham are the gospel. 
because it was promising Christ. And Paul goes on and explains that in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. You remember I brought this up last week. Paul's pointing out, if you look at the Hebrew text, when God makes the promise to Abraham about offspring, the word offspring is not plural. The word offspring is singular. So when God makes these promises, he's not primarily referring to all the many descendants of the Israelites coming from Abraham, but he's referring to one descendant in particular, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. And that's how the gospel itself is promised to Abraham in that covenant. And so Paul's whole point here is he's saying, look, just like that, just like Abraham was justified by faith in the coming Messiah, so now this is how we are also justified. His whole point to the Galatians is that we don't need to go back to the old Mosaic laws and so on because those laws were given after the gospel was promised to Abraham. The whole message of salvation has always been about Jesus and about faith in Christ. It has never been about works. Israel was never justified by keeping the Mosaic law. That was for a whole other function. Rather, Israel was always justified by faith in the coming Messiah, just like Abraham. And so what Paul's doing is he is showing the unity of redemptive history. He's showing the unity of God's plan. That salvation was always, after the fall, through faith in Christ. Like you see that? He's showing salvation is one. And that's going to be really important. Because what we need to do now is turn over to Romans chapter 4. Because Paul's going to continue looking at the Abrahamic covenant and the promises that God made to him. But in Romans 4, he's going to take a little, a little different turn. And he's going to now bring up circumcision. He's going to bring up the sign of the covenant and begin to unfold exactly how the sign was functioning for Abraham in the covenant where God promised Christ. So I want to look at uh, Romans chapter 4, um, verses 7 through 12. This is where things really start getting juicy. Romans 4, verses 7 through 12. Let me read those verses for us here. Here in the beginning of verse 7, Paul is quoting Old Testament scripture where he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after. But before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Okay? Now, I'm not sure how, how well you followed that. There's a lot of pieces to this argument that Paul's sort of carefully 
uh, plugging away at. In Romans uh, 3, just to give you a bit of context here for this passage, Paul is unfolding the doctrine of justification. It's how we are declared righteous before God, how we can be uh, saved. And of course, he expounds that being justified happens through faith, namely through faith in Christ. And so as we come here to chapter 4, Paul is continuing to expound the doctrine of justification by faith, just like he did in Galatians. And guess what example he turns to to demonstrate this doctrine? He goes right back to Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation. You see a pattern here that Paul is doing. Abraham's like his archetypal uh, example of someone who's justified by faith. And Paul loves using Abraham because he can go back to the beginning, go back to the very inception of the Israelite nation and the very promises upon which that nation was founded. And he's showing it was all about faith the whole time, faith in the coming Messiah. That's what Abraham believed. That's what the promises were to him in that covenant that God made with him. And what Paul wants to do here in Romans 4 is he's now bringing up the subject of circumcision into this. He didn't do this so much in our Galatians passage, but now he's bringing the sign of the covenant into the discussion. And you see what he wants to say is he wants to make it clear to his Roman readers that circumcision itself, the sign of the covenant, does not automatically save anyone. You'll remember Jesus had to deal with this issue as well with some of the people that he was interacting with. There were some who thought that as long as they got circumcised, then they were good. They were in the kingdom. Kind of the same way the Pharisees thought that just because they were physical descendants of Abraham, that they were automatically in the kingdom. That's not how it works. Circumcision itself doesn't guarantee salvation. The sign of the covenant itself doesn't guarantee salvation. Rather, Paul makes it clear here that Abraham's righteousness, that is, him being declared righteous before God, was not based upon him receiving the sign of circumcision. Rather, Paul correctly points to the fact that Abraham received his righteousness, that he was justified by God because he had faith in Christ. That was the basis of his salvation. And it was then that the sign was applied. And so what he says in verse 11 then is really important. Paul says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And so you see then, it is the faith of Abraham that is making this sign of circumcision something that's more than just a sign, but that is actually a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith before he received the sign. Now this is really important. Because too often I think, I mean, just like the Jews, you think about uh, the ancient Jews that Jesus had to deal with, Paul had to deal with, the apostles had to deal with. They seemed to think that if they received the sign of the promises of God, if they received the sign of the covenant, then they were automatically in. As human beings, we have this strange tendency to take the signs that God gives us And to confuse the sign with the thing that the sign signifies. You see, it's not, we we think, oh man, it's so crazy the Jews could think that if they just practiced circumcision, they would automatically be saved. That how could anyone think that? 
How did they not see that they needed to actually believe in the promises of God and trust in Yahweh and all these things? How could they think it was the sign that saved them? That's so crazy. We'd never make that mistake today. But there are lots of Christians today who do make that mistake. You think of the Roman Catholic Church. We talked about them earlier in this series. They mistake the sign for the thing signified. And they think that baptism is what actually saves. As long as you dunk the kid underwater, then they're automatically saved. Well, that's not how signs work. They're not automatic. That's not how they work. They're signs and seals of righteousness by faith. Because it is faith that is the instrument of justification, not the sign. All right, we'll talk about that whole issue and how all that relates more in our theological section of our baptism discussion. But right now, that's the point I want you to see that Paul's making here in Romans 4. He's saying circumcision was very important. It was a sign and seal for Abraham, but that's not the cause of his salvation. Faith is the cause of his salvation. Faith in Christ, specifically. Faith in the gospel that was preached to him. Okay? So when we're understanding our doctrine of the sacraments or of how covenant signs work, we need to make sure that we understand how faith is relating to them. And understand, just because we apply the sign to someone doesn't mean they're automatically saved. Got to maintain that important distinction. All right. But back to the Abraham and circumcision discussion. We have now from Galatians 3, the gospel is preached to Abraham. Those are the promises of God. And then next, we have circumcision as a sign and seal of righteousness by faith. Now, notice also that when Paul says that the, that the sign of circumcision is a seal of righteousness by faith, you remember who circumcision was applied to? Was circumcision only applied to Abraham? Did God say, Abraham, you get circumcised, but that's it, just you? Now, who else was circumcised besides Abraham? His descendants, right, his descendants. Specifically, Isaac, right? We're told Isaac was circumcised on the eighth day. And not only Isaac, but Ishmael. Ishmael was circumcised. He was also of the household of Abraham. So in other words, God said, give this covenant sign not only to you, but to your household. That's going to be important for later on too when we get to the New Testament and we see household baptisms being applied. It's the same idea going on. But then now compare Romans 4 here and Paul's teaching about circumcision to the application of circumcision to Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac, of course, was in the godly line. Isaac was a true, genuine believer, right? But Ishmael wasn't. Yet both received the sign because their father, Abraham, was justified by faith. And because he was justified by faith, so his children were to receive the sign because they were of the household of one who walked in faith. That's another important aspect that's going to come in in our theological discussion about baptism. Right? The sign itself doesn't guarantee salvation, but the sign is to be applied not only to a believer, but to the children of the believer. So that's really important. All right, now let's flip over as we continue looking at Paul's understanding of circumcision as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. 
It's a little further along in your New Testaments. Philippians chapter 3, and I want to look at verses 2 and 3 here. And this is a a much more brief text. It's not going to require a ton of, of explanation. But this is a very interesting verse. It's going to be really important. Because what Paul's going to do now in this passage and the next passage we'll look at is he's going to begin relating how circumcision relates to baptism and how it relates to Christians. How should Christians think about circumcision and the Abrahamic covenant? And so this is Philippians chapter 3, and I'll just read verses 2 and 3. Here's what Paul says. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, there's a couple of really cool things. Actually, this, you could do a whole Sunday school series probably just on these two verses. There's so much theology packed into, into this verse. But just very briefly, Paul actually, in the Greek text of this verse, has a, a sort of a play on words going on. As you'll see at the very end of verse 2, that phrase, those who mutilate the flesh, right, or something similar to that in your translation, that phrase uh, in the Greek is the word concision which, interestingly, is very much similar to the word circumcision, but they just have different prefixes. Circumcision means to cut around, which makes sense if you know what circumcision is. Concision means not just to cut around, but it means to completely cut apart, to destroy, to just chop up into pieces. Okay, And so what Paul is saying is, Look, look out for all of those crazy people out there, those wrong people who are practicing the complete cutting up, the destroying, the wrecking. They're just destroying what God has given us. Watch out for those guys. Why? Because, verse 3, we are not the concision, not the destroyers, the chopper-uppers, but rather we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And so it's just fascinating then that as Paul now has this imagery of circumcision in his mind, he's saying, look, we Christians, we Gentile believers, right? Because he's writing to the Christians in Philippi who are Gentiles, not Jews. They're not circumcised in the flesh. He says, look, we are the circumcision. That is, we as those who walk in the faith like Abraham, And who, like Abraham, have been justified by faith in the Messiah. We have received the promises that were signified in circumcision. Which were the promises that Christ fulfilled when he came as a descendant of Abraham. We are the circumcision as Christians. Even if we're not actually physically circumcised. We are those who are the spiritual inheritors of the promises given to Abraham. That's what he's saying there in just one word. It's absolutely rich. And he's going to unfold this now as we turn to our last passage, which is Colossians chapter 2. In, in Philippians, he just mentions this in passing. We are the circumcision, then moves on. But in Colossians 2, he unfolds this a little bit more deeply. How is it that Gentiles who are uncircumcised in the flesh, are actually partakers of the promises signified 
in the practice of circumcision when God gave it to Abraham. All right? He explains this here in Colossians 2. Now, if you uh, remember our Colossians Sunday School series that we did last year, we looked at this passage. Um, and so I won't rehearse the context in great detail, but just know that in Colossians chapter 1, Paul dealt with the doctrine of Christ, explaining Jesus is God and you know, all that good stuff. And then in chapter 2, he's now beginning to apply that doctrine of Christ to his readers. And so I want to read Colossians 2, verses 9 through 12. And here's where we see uh, Paul making this abundantly clear. Romans 2, 9 through 12. Or excuse me, Colossians 2, 9 through 12. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, again, like Philippians, this little couple of verses is also worthy of a massive Sunday school series just in itself because it is so, you know, so complex, so, so deep, so much theology is packed into these couple of verses. But just to be very broad, remember, the Colossians that Paul is writing to are also, like the Philippians, Gentiles. They are not circumcised, all right? They are Greeks. And Paul says, listen, in Christ, you have been circumcised. Now, they're not circumcised literally. Their flesh is not circumcised. But he says, you, Gentiles, uncircumcised in the flesh, have been circumcised. But it's with a circumcision made without hands. It's not a literal circumcision, not a physical one. Rather, it's a spiritual circumcision. And how have you been spiritually circumcised as a Gentile? It is by being buried with him in baptism. Now you see what Paul's doing there. He's drawing a close connection between circumcision and baptism. He's saying, look, Gentiles, you do have not received the physical sign of the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision. You haven't received it, but you have received all of the promises of circumcision. Everything to which the Abrahamic covenant was pointing to and signified in circumcision. You've received those promises. How? By being buried with him in baptism. You see that strong connection then between circumcision and baptism. Baptism then is something that we could say, has replaced circumcision because circumcision signified the coming of the Messiah, which Abraham believed and was justified. And now baptism symbolizes the fact that Christ has come and he died and he washed away all of our sins through faith. And so baptism then, in a sense, looks back to Christ. But in another sense, baptism is also going to look forward to the second coming of Christ. When he's going to come and he's going to wash us white as snow once and for all. And sin will be gone. 
You see, there's a rich, rich theology of baptism that Paul is bringing out here as he connects the sign of the Abrahamic covenant and the sign of the new covenant, circumcision and baptism. And he's doing all of this because he wants us to see the continuity of God's plan. And he can connect, Paul can rightly connect circumcision and baptism because he sees so clearly throughout the corpus of his writing that the covenant that God made with Abraham and the new covenant which we are under are essentially the same under the covenant of grace. It is one plan that God has unfolded. And though there are changes as the periods of redemptive history go on, it is nonetheless one covenant of grace, all about Jesus. And the signs point to that reality. Right, you see that? So that is circumcision in the New Testament, at least according to Paul. All right. All right, are there any brief questions here? We've got one minute before I need to, to wrap it up. Any questions before we close? No questions. All right, well, that's good. I guess the Bible's that clear. I like it. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Next week, um, we'll be continuing to look at baptism in Scripture. And I've got some, some really interesting stuff, I think, planned for next week. So I hope you're excited for that. All right, let's close in prayer. Oh, God, we thank you for your word. And um, we thank you, Lord, that um, you know, we find in the New Testament... Uh, that the apostles were so carefully looking back to the Old Testament and they were so carefully trying to understand the promises uh, that you made and the signs that you gave and how those things relate to us today with the promises that we have and the signs that we have. Uh, Lord, pray that you give us clarity to understand these things and uh, that we would see um, what you inspired your apostles to write for us. Uh, we thank you for baptism, Lord, and we pray that you'd continue to give us clarity of thought as we try to understand it, and that it would motivate us to love you more and to worship you and to hold to our Savior Christ. Uh, we pray now that um, you would bless our worship this morning and uh, that you'd prepare us to hear the preaching of your word. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.